Prodigal John Casters. With John Field, Jen Gupta, Stuart Harper, Evan Keane, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison and Mark Verbe. The Jobcast, May 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Evan and Jen. Hello. Hello. What are you doing here? Either of you. You <laughs> left. You both left. What's happening? Evan, you want to go first? Well, we just came back. Yeah, didn't you miss us? Yeah. Okay. If you want serious answers, I'm just up in Manchester for a couple of days trying to finish off a paper. Um, so I'm not properly back. <sighs> I'm sorry. Well, I, I want to tell you that because someone... One of the listeners said they missed you. We made you get on the train and come back up here. And Evan? Um, because I've recently moved back to Manchester and I'm going to be here for the next few months. Okay, so, so we might be hearing you a bit more then. In the show this time, we talk to Dr. Rubina Kotak about supernovae and we find out what you can see in the May night sky from Ian Morrison and John Field. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, everything you need to know for a rainy Saturn day. For many astronomers, one of the most impressive sights in the night sky will undoubtedly be the rings of Saturn. The rings claim this accolade because of how readily visible they are in the night sky, even when using amateur telescopes. The rings appear from Earth to be made of two main components that glow with a slightly brownish light and are separated by a narrow dark stripe. However, it was not until space probes like Voyager and the later more specialised Cassini mission actually travelled to Saturn that the incredible nature of the rings could be understood. Instead of being made up of just two concentric rings, Saturn's rings appear as hundreds of concentric circular filaments made up mostly of billions of fragments of water ice. This month's news is dedicated to the science of Saturn, both in its rings and its atmosphere. Viewed edge on, Saturn's rings all but disappear. This is because even though Saturn's rings stretch up thousands of kilometres above Saturn's equator, they have a thickness, when unperturbed by passing moons, of merely 10 metres. This is equivalent to the Earth being enclosed by a ring only a single atom thick. It may be assumed, then, that observing Saturn's rings edge-on may yield no useful information, and for much of the time this is true. But every 14 and a half years the entire scene changes, when the Saturnian equinox occurs. The Saturnian equinox is the moment where, the, from the perspective of Saturn, the Sun passes from one side of the rings to the other. During this transition, there are a few days where the Sun's light shines through the disk. It is at this point that it becomes easy to see the walls of cloud that protrude up out of the plane of the disk. These clouds are made up of fragments of ice that have been ejected after a meteor impact. A team of astronomers working with images taken by the Cassini orbiter have been investigating the ejected clouds caused by meteors striking Saturn's rings. The meteors in question are thought to be only a few centimetres, up to about one metre in radius. This sort of meteor is far too small to be able to observe directly, which means that the clouds ejected after an impact with Saturn's rings may be the only way for astronomers to know they existed. Although it is unlikely that Cassini will observe an impact as it occurs, this does not matter as the impact time can be estimated by measuring the length of the cloud. Initially, the impact cloud will be a spherical ball of icy material thrown in all directions. But as Saturn's rings rotate, the ball is stretched out into a long line that could be up to thousands of kilometres long. What the astronomers hope to understand from this investigation of small meteor impacts on Saturn's rings is whether or not there are enough impacts to replenish the ring system with fresh material faster than it has lost to the atmosphere of Saturn. This has large implications for the age of Saturn's rings, as there is currently debate as to whether the rings are a young 100 million years old, or form not long after Saturn several billion years ago. In August 1980, the Voyager 1 space probe began its one and only visit to Saturn, eventually passing as close as a few million kilometres above its gassy atmosphere. The images taken by Voyager 1 became the best pictures of Saturn since NASA's previous visit with Pioneer 11. However, there are unusual features found in some of the images taken. These features were two or three large dark shadows banded around the surface of Saturn. The cause of these shadows at the time was unknown. Some scientists had a theory that perhaps this effect could be caused by rain falling on Saturn's upper atmosphere, originating from Saturn's own rings. Unfortunately, there is no way of being sure what the cause of the shadows was, as Voyager 1 was bound on a course that would leave Saturn far behind it. How would water be transported from the rings and down onto Saturn? 
The answer to this is related to the interactions between the smallest fragments of water ice in the rings and Saturn's magnetic field. The smallest icy particles are able to acquire static charges from interactions with light or meteor strikes on the rings. The motion of these charged ice particles then becomes dominated by Saturn's magnetic field and they soon find themselves spiralling along the magnetic field lines, falling out of the ring until eventually crashing into Saturn's upper atmosphere. With the goal of proving or disproving the possibility of rain falling from Saturn's rings, some astronomers set to work using the Keck Observatory's near-infrared spectroscopic telescope. The aim was to try and measure emission from ionised molecular hydrogen high up in the ionosphere of Saturn. The reason being that if water molecules are falling onto the ionosphere from the rings, then the amount of ionised molecular hydrogen would be depleted. This is exactly what was observed, and, slightly unexpectedly, it seemed that a much larger area of Saturn was experiencing rainfall than was predicted. This mechanism for removing water ice from the rings is known as electromagnetic erosion, and acts to destroy the rings. Electromagnetic erosion, like meteor impacts in the previous story, is another clue in estimating the age of Saturn's rings. And finally, the Cassini Orbiter science team last month released a new set of processed images of a gigantic hurricane forever blowing around the North Pole of Saturn. They have been observing the North Polar regions of Saturn since the beginning of the Cassini mission because an unusual hexagon-shaped feature could be seen. However, the core of the feature could never be observed, because Saturn's pole was tilted away from the Sun. This changed after the 2009 Saturnian equinox, as the North Pole became illuminated, revealing the eye of Saturn's perpetual hurricane. The Saturnian hurricane is different to terrestrial hurricanes, not because of its size and tremendous wind speeds of 330 miles per hour, but because it is locked, unmoving, onto the North Pole. Earth-based hurricanes drift gradually towards their nearest polar region because of the interaction between the rotation of the spiralling winds and the rotation of the Earth. However, a Saturnian hurricane has nowhere left to go, and so remains stationary. Polar hurricanes may not be something we see on the Earth, but elsewhere in the solar system, they certainly are not unusual. Saturn itself has a matching hurricane on its south pole. There may be one on Neptune, and even one on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now we have Indy talking to Dr. Rubina Kotak about supernova explosions. Today we're here with Dr. Rubina Kotak from Queen's University, Belfast. Hi, Dr. Kotak. Hello. You're here to present the talk about supernovae arising from massive stars. Could you, first of all, remind our listeners um, what is a supernova? <laughs> okay, so um, a supernova is basically um, a star... Uh, that explodes at the end of its life. So, um, generally, there are two kinds of supernovae. Um, one kind occurs when you have uh, the core um, of stars like our Sun that have, have evolved for a long time um, in orbit around another star. That's a particular kind of supernova uh, with which um, we can actually measure distances and which won uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2011. The kind that I'm talking about uh, arise from massive stars, so they come from uh, stars that are some, something like eight or more, eight times or more massive than our own sun. And um, they shine because um, they're burning hydrogen to helium and helium to carbon, things like that. Uh, at, at, at the point at which they re the core reaches iron, um, the star can no longer support itself against gravity and, um, and it collapses and results in an explosion. Um, so those are the two textbook varieties of, of supernovae. But today we're finding more and more peculiar objects which have forced us to uh, come up with alternative ways to make stars explode. So what's special about these uh, these supernovae from massive stars and, and what kind of exotic objects uh, are you talking about? So um, for, the, for the normal variety of, of um, uh, massive star supernovae, um, they generate most of the elements, or most of the heavy elements that uh, we see around us today. Um, for, the, for the weird kinds, we are finding objects uh, in the very distant universe that are extremely bright, and we have to come up with new theories to explain why they are so bright. Um, at the same time, we are also finding events from new surveys that are very dim, and we have to try and explain those as well, and, and link everything in a, in a sort of coherent framework. So that's what we are trying to do. Okay, but if the objects are particularly bright or particularly dim, what what makes you say they're still supernovae, for example? 
So the very bright ones, we don't know of any other um, any any other mechanism that occurs in normal stars that would make them shine so brightly. We know exactly how far they are in many cases, so we can work out how how bright they are intrinsically, and uh, from from there on we can uh, conclude that they must arise uh, from explosions. Um, I think this is a very good question at, at the faint end, because in many cases we are not sure that this is really a, an explosion that destroys the star and leaves behind a, a compact remnant like a black hole or a neutron star. Uh, but there are certain indications primarily coming from uh, processed materials or heavy elements that we see uh, that we observe in these in these explosions that lead us to believe that they are in fact an explosion of some kind. Just to clarify for astronomers, heavy elements is anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So supernova is basically a, a massive explosion, and I can imagine that has a certain effect on the surrounding environment. Uh, what happens when it explodes? So obviously a supernova um, explosion is very energetic, so it tends to destroy or sweep away a lot of the material that is uh, in the immediate surroundings. Uh, but in some cases, when there is a bit of this material left off from previous phases of evolution, um, then we can actually use um, this interaction between the supernova and its surroundings to actually try and work out uh, what kind of star exploded. Um, and, and this is something that, that we are uh, very actively doing uh, using different telescopes and so on. Um, and so it's it's a kind of it's kind of looking back in time, as it were, or, or doing sort of supernova forensics. So using uh, the leftover material from from the explosion uh, to piece together what kind of events uh, led up to the explosion itself, and that helps us constrain uh, theories of stellar evolution, uh, which are particularly ill constrained for massive stars, as it happens. What's the current picture of stellar evolution and what do we now know about massive stars and how they evolve? So basically the lives of, of, of stars more massive than about 8 to 10 solar masses um, is governed by, by mass loss. So that, that is, um, uh, takes the form of stellar winds or can be uh, eruptions of one sort or another. And this material is thrown off from the outer layers of the star and it moves away from the star or it escapes the star with a certain speed. Um, and sometimes just after that happens, the star itself explodes and we can then study this interaction quite closely. As far as stellar evolution itself goes, um, you basically have a star that goes from burning hydrogen in its core to helium, which then evolves to burning successively heavier and heavier elements up to iron. That's the sort of general picture that we have, but we have so many uh, variations in the kinds of massive stars that we see uh, that we're still working on trying to understand exactly which phase happens when and for how long. Okay. And you mentioned an interesting thing about these massive stars is that potentially they throw out a lot of dust when they explode. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So one of the puzzles that has been around for a long time is that in very, very distant um, galaxies, so when the universe was only a, a very small fraction of its current age, we see enormous quantities of dust. And by that, I mean sort of grains of of um, silicates and graphites and, and, and things like that, rather than the dust we want to sweep off the bookshelf. <laughs> but um, uh, so the puzzle is where these where these grains come from. In the local universe, we think it's the lower mass stars that dominate this dust budget. But at very uh, distant galaxies, this cannot be the case because these, these low mass stars aren't old enough uh, to produce um, uh, these dust grains. So why aren't the low mass stars the dominant contributor at, at larger distances? We know from studies of low mass stars that they need to be of a certain age before they can produce, uh, they can reach uh, their dust producing stage. And if we look far enough back um, or, or large enough distances, which is the same thing, um, then these stars are simply not old enough to have reached that stage. So one of the ideas that, that was proposed already in the 60s was that when, when supernovae explode, they, they have a lot of um, their the material that they eject is is metal rich, and therefore there's a possibility for grains to condense. Um, so we've been trying to test this idea using uh, different measurements in in somewhat more nearby supernovae to check if this is in fact correct. 
And when you talk about um, the particles condensing into dust, uh, what do you mean exactly? So uh, obviously, the, when when you have a supernova uh, explosion, um, everything is very hot and in the gas phase. And at some point, uh, because it's expanding very fast at several thousands of kilometers per second, it also cools quite rapidly. And this allows grains to form or to solidify. And this is what uh, we mean by uh, dust condensing in, in supernova material. Okay. So what kind of observations do you do? You do? do you use optical telescopes, infrared telescopes, anything else? Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so because supernovae um, are so energetic, they, they emit across the entire uh, electromagnetic spectrum. So from a very high energy ultraviolet and X-rays all the way out, out to submillimeter and, and radio wavelengths. Um, I particularly work in the optical and infrared uh, regimes where where supernovae emit most of their um, light, as it were, during its younger uh, phases. And as it gets older, uh, one tends to move to to longer wavelengths. Great. And so, what does the future hold for these uh, for these massive stars? What are you hoping to find out more about this? One of the things um, many of us are very much looking forward to is the next generation of uh, ground and space-based telescopes. Uh, we'd like to ideally look for the very first supernovae that ever went off in the universe uh, and to find uh, what epochs they went off at, what kind of supernovae they were, whether they bear any resemblance to the supernovae that we see today. So these would be the very the, sort of the deaths of the very first generation of stars in the universe. That's correct. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Kotak. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. And now onto that part of the show where we fit in everything that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. My piece of news is that Ireland now has a new low-fire station, or mini low-fire station, I should say. Remind us what low-fire is again. Low-fire is the low-frequency array. So it's a telescope made up of antennas in fields, spread across many fields, spread across many countries in Europe, and all connected by the internet. And there's a group in Ireland that wants to get a low-fire station there. If you've seen the previous Jodcast video where we visited the Chilbolton low-fire station, which is the UK one, you'll know what it looks like. Actually, the existence of this mini low-fire station in Ireland has uh, quite a bit to do with the Chilbolton station. Last year, there was some pretty bad storms down south where it's not sunny. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the antennas got uh, got broken and destroyed, had to be replaced. And some of these antennas were deemed unrepairable. But the Irish guys came and took the unrepairable antennas and they repaired them. And they took them back to Ireland and made a mini loafer station. And they've set it up in the grounds of Burr Castle which is in the centre of the country. And does it work? And it works. Wow. Which is the best bit. And last week, they've even made some observations with it. And they've seen uh, bursts from the sun. And they plan to do some observations of planets in the solar system and pulsars and more besides. So good on them. So in the video, we saw the students um, repairing the LOFAR station. You're saying that some people just came along and picked up the broken bits and went away and like seeded a new little cutting of the low far telescope. If you want to put it in such terms, can anyone, can anyone <laughs> yes. do that? Can we make a low far station from some broken bits? Well, I guess, but you'd probably have to ask. Oh, okay. Don't just show up and harvest them. Okay. I mean, the thing about low far is that the actual kit that um, that low far is made up of is just like a pole in the ground with some wires, so that's not too hard to build yourself. I think the hard part is being able to link it up to all the other low-fast stations and actually the software and everything is pretty high-tech. Is this one in Ireland linked up to the rest of them or is it acting by itself? Uh, at the moment, it's just acting by itself. But okay. the plan is to, well, change it into into a full station. That requires a bit of money. I think it requires about a million euros. Okay. And they're, they're, they've collected a good fraction of that. They've already shown they can basically make it work as a telescope. So. Yes, which is great. Yeah. So that'll hopefully convince the powers it be to give them some money to do it. And would this extend low far further to the west? Yeah, significantly. It would be the most western point. And that also makes the maximum baseline that LOFAR can uh, use much wider, which increases the resolution of the telescope, of the overall array, which means you can zoom in more on things. That sounds like it's worth doing then. I think so. My odd and end um, refers back to an event 
from about 19 years ago, um, which unfortunately I can remember quite well, because I was 11 years old. I uh, hear a silence from you guys. <laughs> yes, you don't remember this, when Comet Shoemaker Levy 9 crashed into the planet Jupiter? Mm. No, I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I was small. <laughs> <laughs> well, although that happened 19 years ago, um, this comet came towards Jupiter, broke into various fragments and crashed into it, and it left some quite significant marks in the atmosphere, which were picked up even in quite small telescopes. So it's pretty exciting. Uh, but what has now been found by observations of the Herschel Space Observatory, which is an infrared telescope, is that it seems as though Shoemaker-Levy 9 left behind a lot of water on Jupiter. And not just like quite a lot, but actually a lot more than was already detectable in Jupiter's atmosphere. So was it a, basically a ball of ice that hit Jupiter then? I guess there was a lot of ice in it. Yeah, they say water, so H2O, but I assume it's probably in ice form now mm. anyway, being as Jupiter's quite cold. Um, but the interesting thing is that although three years ago the European Space Agency's Infrared Space Observatory saw water on Jupiter, they're now able to pinpoint more accurately where it is. And first of all, there's a lot more of it in the Southern Hemisphere, which was where Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 hit. And secondly, the water actually seems to be concentrated around the places where the fragments of the comet actually struck. So they're saying, according to one of the lead researchers who is at the Astrophysical Laboratory of Bordeaux, as much as 95% of the water in the stratosphere of Jupiter could be due to the cometary impact. So there seems to be water all over the solar system, um, but it might have got to different places in different ways. So in all the four gas giants, they're saying maybe there's different ways that it that it came to be there. Um, they looked at Jupiter, whether there were other ways it could have come there, like could it have come off the icy moons? But apparently the water isn't found in the right place for that to have happened. Could it just come from interplanetary dust? Well, if it did, then why isn't it evenly distributed around the planet? Or could it have come up from the lower atmosphere? Um, but apparently there's a, there's a cold layer which would actually stop it doing that. So there's pretty good evidence that most of this water came from the comet. But we can't go there and drink it. Well, no. <laughs> but it's always exciting when water is found because water is one of those things we need to live so the more water is around I guess the better the farther we can go yeah until getting thirsty exactly saving the best till last obviously uh, I didn't really come to this prepared because I wasn't expecting to be job casting <laughs> but I'm going to cheat and talk about something that I now work on don't try and say we forced you into this yeah they forced me into the studio uh, I had no choice about it uh, that's a lie I wanted to um, so I now work at the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation down at the University of Portsmouth which is why Evan um, tried to claim that the south wasn't sunny in his little bit and so one of the projects that we're involved with in Portsmouth is the Galaxy Zoo project and I imagine that nearly all Jogcast listeners will know about Galaxy Zoo. If not, it's a website where you can go online and you can classify pictures of galaxies. So you can say whether it's a spiral or an elliptical, and then you get asked questions um, in more detail about what it looks like. And there's a whole host of projects now on the Zooniverse. Uh, there's, I think, five more astronomy projects. You can classify um, craters on the moon. You can search for other planets around stars. Um, you can find bubbles in the Milky Way. And there's a whole load of other ones if you're, you know, not into doing astronomy all the time you can go and listen to whale sounds or um, classify wow. animals in the Serengeti that's one of the really Whoa, popular wow. ones um, but, but not getting away from astronomy because that's obviously the most exciting thing yeah so back to the astronomy and the exciting thing uh, so I look at Galaxy Zoo with an outreach hat on because I'm the outreach officer at the ICG and there's two neat projects now that are coming online one is Galaxy Zoo Navigator so if you go onto galaxyzoo.org and you scroll down to the bottom you can click on Navigator and what this uh, basically does is you start classifying galaxies in a group. So it's designed to be used in the classroom. So you have to create a group, but you can just have yourself in a group. I've got my own one. Um, but once you classify in your group, you can then go back into the navigator and you can um, see your classifications and see how well you've done compared to other people. So it will show you your galaxies and I have a little bar chart of how many people thought it was a spiral, how many people thought it was an elliptical, how many people thought it was an artifact. So you can see how well you did with those. The classification is always based on the idea that it's like everyone on average gets it right. So there's, um, it's interesting actually, because there are some galaxies that are really obvious. You know, everyone will say 
it's a spiral or everyone was saying it's elliptical and those they only need about uh, a handful of classifications um, there are other ones that are really uncertain so then they that keeps in the system for longer and you get more classifications those are the interesting ones i think i always think it's interesting when you can't figure out what it is um, the other thing you can do on navigator is you can make some plots we all like making plots <laughs> so plots. you can make a histogram of uh, redshift or um, absolute magnitude or color um, using your classifications or um, classifications just in general from galaxy zoo you can change your sample size and you can also do scatter plots so that's kind of neat and if anyone listening is a teacher there's also a website called zoo teach where we're trying to get uh, lesson plans that are based around galaxy zoo and the other projects but that i guess will only be interesting if you're either in school or a teacher or you have children who are in school i wouldn't mind going back to school and doing some galaxy zoo classification projects are you going to let other people into your group or are you just going to be a group of one um at the moment it's called jen's test group because i was just kind of testing out you can be in my group if you want i can invite you okay i don't yeah. know if i want to be tested on them <laughs> and now for a man who can classify any galaxy here's the northern hemisphere night sky with ian morrison the night sky in may 2013 of course may june july the nights aren't all that long so in a way we have less to see but let's have a look and see what there is in the sky twixt sunset and dawn. As the sun sets over in the west, the constellation of Taurus the Bull is setting, and we'll come back to that in one of the highlights. And more prominently, now moving from the south to the southwest and then down to the west, is that rather nice constellation of Leo the Lion, looking a little bit like the lions in Trafalgar Square, on their haunches. Over to the left of Leo, low down, it's a fairly empty part of the sky, which contains the constellation of Virgo. It is, however, a very rich area of the sky, if you have a reasonable-sized telescope, because between Virgo and Coma Berenices above, we have what is called the Realm of the Galaxies, where there are many of the Charles Messe objects, such as M87, I photographed the other night. But you do need a dark sky, good binoculars, or a small telescope to see them. The brightest star in Virgo is Spica, Alpha Virginis, and over to the left of that, as we shall see, is the planet Saturn. Moving up above Virgo, towards, in fact, the plough high up in the sky, we have the constellation of Bootes, and the brightest star there is a somewhat yellowish star, Arcturus. To its left, the Northern Crown. And then an interesting constellation called Hercules will be rising well up in the east. The four brightest stars of Hercules make up what is called a keystone. And with binoculars, if you scan between the lower right and the upper right of these four stars, you should see a little fuzzy blob. And that's a globular cluster called M13, the largest and brightest in our northern hemisphere. As the night moves on, that rather lovely part of the sky, containing three constellations, Lyra, Cygnus and Aquila, with their bright stars Vega, Deneb and Altair, forming what is called the Summer Triangle. And we'll say more about that in the coming months. If you do have a telescope, just to the left of the bright star Vega, Alpha Lyrae, is a rather lovely little object. Well, it's two stars, but if you look at them with binoculars, you'll see the two, I hope. But if you look at them with a telescope on the night of dark seeing, you see each of that pair is itself a double star. So it's called the double-double, and one of the loveliest sights in the northern sky. To find out more about some of these individual objects, you might care to put in the astronomical A-list into Google or find it, in fact, from our Night Sky page. Quite a few years ago now, I made a list of what I think are the 50th best objects in the whole sky, hence the name A-List, and the little description of each of those and how to find them. You might find that useful and even perhaps interesting. Well, what of the planets this month? It's actually not a bad month for planets. Jupiter, in the constellation of Taurus, is still visible in the west after sunset, but its low elevation will hamper our viewing. 
It shines at magnitude minus two at the beginning of May, and it's between the horns of Taurus the bull, some nine degrees above the star Aldebaran. The angular diameter is, of course, dropping as it moves away from us, from 33.6 to 32.4 arc seconds. But even so, a small telescope will show you the bands and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn, as we shall see, is a highlight this month, but one or two things about it. It's lying in Libra as May begins. It reached opposition on the 28th of April. So it'll be visible all night and it will be due south around midnight UT. It crosses into Virgo on the 13th of May as it moves westward in what's called retrograde motion. And that's because the Earth is actually sort of moving around more quickly on the inside track. So even though Saturn is still moving eastwards in the sky, our view of it, as seen from the Earth, tends to move backwards for a bit. The rings are about 18 degrees from the line of sight, which isn't bad. They will extend about 43 arc seconds around the diameter of the little disk, which is about 13 arc seconds. We're seeing the planet's southern hemisphere. Much of the northern hemisphere, of course, will be hidden by the rings. And with a small scope, you should be able to pick up Saturn's largest moon, Titan. It doesn't get very high, I'm afraid. I think about 28 degrees elevation at transit. And that's because it's moving down towards the lower part of the ecliptic. And sadly, this is going to get worse for quite a number of years to come. Well, what about Mercury? It passes behind the sun on May the 11th, so you obviously don't see it in the first half of the month. And it will be visible from about the 19th when it joins Jupiter and Venus in the evening sky, one of the highlights this month. So I'll say more about that later on. Even though Mercury will shine initially at magnitude minus 1.4, you'll almost certainly need binoculars to spot it against the twilight sky. As the May progresses, Mercury climbs higher, but also becomes fainter, and Jupiter drops lower towards the horizon. So, for a little while, as we shall see, they form a very nice trio, with all three planets within a five-degree circle for several days. And on the 26th, they'll only be in a circle two and a half degrees across. So you'll easily see them in the same field of a pair of binoculars or with a small telescope. That'll be a very nice imaging opportunity, should, let's hope, it be clear. Well, Mars passes behind the Sun on the 18th of April, and so will not be visible for several months until it appears in the pre-dawn sky. Well, Venus, shining at magnitude minus 3.9, emerges from behind the Sun in the second week of May, and rises, as I've said, to join Mercury and Jupiter, in the evening sky after sunset. Its disk spans 10 arc seconds across, and when you see it in mid-May, it'll be nearly full phase, and the phase will only drop to 96% by month's end. It was the fact that Galileo observed that Venus could show virtually full phases that implied it must be beyond the sun, and hence, rather than going round in what's called an epicycle between the Earth and the Sun, as in the Ptolemaic idea of the solar system, it actually orbited the Sun, the Copernican idea. That was a very fundamental observation made by Galileo. Well, finally, what about the month's highlights? Well, I've mentioned Saturn. It crosses into Virgo on the 13th. It's still pretty low, as I've said. The magnitude falls fractionally from plus 0.1 to plus 0.3 magnitudes, so it's not that bright. The angular size decreases just a little, from 18.8 to 18.5 arc seconds. We're now observing the planet's southern hemisphere, and a small scope should easily show Cassini's division, if the seeing is good. There are two aspects to the atmosphere, seeing and transparency. Transparency basically says how faint stars you can see with your unaided eye. Seeing is how good the image quality is when you use a telescope to, say, observe the planets. The seeing is very bad when you see the stars twinkling a lot. And sadly, it's usually the case that when the transparency is good, we have clear air coming in from the poles, polar maritime air. It's actually pretty turbulent, so the seeing's terrible. On the other hand, 
on occasions, particularly when the air is coming from the south, we get these rather hazy days in late autumn, the seeing can be very good. It's very rare that both are good together. That one such night occurred just a few days ago, as I record this, and I took an absolutely wonderful image of the moon, a single exposure with a camera showing more detail than I've ever seen before in a single exposure. Sadly, though, soon after taking that first picture, the clouds came over, and I was hoping, in fact, to be able to image Saturn later that night. This was not to be. So do try and have a look at Saturn. Show it to your friends. If you have a telescope, it'll make them see one of the wonders, I think, of our night sky. The thing that makes Saturn stand out, of course, is its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is a C or crepe ring. They're actually easier seen when Saturn is at opposition. In fact, the rings actually become brighter as the light sort of falls on them and reflects straight back pretty much to us. So that would be the case at the very beginning of May. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis, it's 27 degrees in angle to the plane of the solar system, the rings appear differently over the orbit, and twice each orbit they lie edge on to us, and so can hardly be seen. That last happened in 2009, and as I've said, they're now opening out They'll continue to open out until about May 2017 and then narrow until March 2025 when they'll be edge on again. Well, we do have a meteor shower this month, May the 6th before dawn. You have a chance, if clear, of seeing what is called the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. You have to look east-southeast well before dawn on the morning of May the 6th and you need a good low horizon in that direction. A thin, waning crescent moon will be in the same part of the sky, but not hopefully too bright, so it should not hide too many of perhaps 10 meteors per hour that you might see. So it's not a particularly dynamic meteor shower. The Eta Aquarids, as they're called, result from dust particles that were released from Comet Halley. In an eruption, as it neared the sun, some 4,000 years ago. Well, in principle in May, you can see two comets. We've talked about comet pan-stars in the last couple of months. It's now, in fact, circumpolar. That is, you could see it all through the night as it passes between Cassiopeia towards Polaris in Ursa Minor. And again, the thing to do is to look on the, quotes, night skies page of the Jodrell Bank website there's a the little chart telling you where to look throughout the month. It's obviously fading now, so it won't be terribly bright, but I think binoculars or a small telescope should show it. And it does actually show a very nice little tail. It looks just like a comet ought to, if not particularly bright. And there's a second comet that will enter our skies from the southern hemisphere, where in fact it's actually shown up rather well. It's going to come up to the left of the square of Pegasus, so again, only visible in the hours before dawn. Initially, at a magnitude of about plus 6.5, so binoculars would easily pick it up. But it probably would be lost in the sun's glare at that time. But during the month, it actually moves up along the left-hand side of the square of Pegasus. But as it does so, its magnitude, as it moves further from the sun, drops to about plus 8, so binoculars will certainly be needed. So on the 11th, it lies just to the left of the lower star of the Great Square, and on the 30th, it'll be just to the left of the brightest star in the square, Alpha Andromeda, in fact, called Alpha Rats. So that's probably quite a good time to look for it. It'll be fairly obvious where to see it. It was actually pretty good, as I said, in the Southern Hemisphere. It reached a magnitude of plus 4.7 and showed a rather nice, slender, green tail. Well, we have this month what is called a megamoon or a supermoon. And that's when we have a moon, when it's full, closest to the Earth. The angular size is therefore as big as it can be. And as it's full moon, it's also as bright as it can be and can really look rather dynamic. So the night to watch is perhaps the evening of May the 24th, although it's actually closest to the Earth 
on the morning of the 25th. And in fact, there's an incredibly minor penumbral eclipse, which I doubt whether almost anybody could observe, as at the time, the moon will be setting into the west and it'll be getting light. But nevertheless, the diameter will be 12% greater than it normally is. And on the night sky page, I've actually shown a little plot that I made, two moons, one when it's at apogee, one when it's at perigee, showing what's quite a dynamic difference in size. Why the moon looks so big when it's near the horizon is definitely an optical illusion, because in fact, of course, it should look bigger when it's in the sky overhead, simply because we're then nearer to it by about one Earth radii, if you think about it. The reasoning that I like is that we feel that our dome, the dome above our heads, isn't actually hemispherical, but flattened. So the sky above is closer to us than the sky on the horizon. And that was certainly true when you look at the clouds. So when we see the moon on the horizon, we think it's much further away than when it's actually above us. And perhaps our brain puts in some correcting effect to make it appear as it does much larger. So finally, at the very end of the month, we've talked about Jupiter falling towards the horizon and Mercury and Venus rising up from the horizon. From the evenings of the 24th to the 28th, they will form quite a nice little tight grouping seen just above the horizon after sunset. You will need a pretty good low horizon. And in fact, the chart that I showed based on Solarium, I had to put an ocean horizon in rather than the normal one because in the normal horizon, they were hidden by a big tree. So best seen about um, 2200 BST in the north, northwest after sunset. You'll probably need binoculars, particularly to pick up Mercury the faintest, but don't use them, of course, until the sun has set. Venus will be the brightest, followed by Jupiter, and then Mercury. And I have put a little plot as how they will appear on the 26th. They make a very nice equilateral triangle. And a warning, the plot that I put, I actually have to reduce the skylight to make the planets visible. So the planets will not appear so obvious to you as they do in the little chart. So there we go. Let's hope we have some nice clear nights and you get some good observing, even though the nights are not that long. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And now John Field tells us what we can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky during May. Kia ora, and welcome to the May broadcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. May sees Orion the Hunter in the western sky, below Sirius, the brightest star. Sirius marks the head of one of the two dogs following the Hunter across the sky. Procyon marks the lesser dog. To the right of Orion are two bright stars marking Gemini, the twins. Sirius is the brightest star in our night sky, although star-like the planets Venus, Jupiter and sometimes Mars are brighter. Sirius is only the brightest star because it is nearby to our solar system 8.7 light years away. It is about 23 times brighter than our sun. Sirius is often called the dog star, as it is the brightest star in Canis Major, one of the two dogs that follow Orion across the sky. Sirius, being so bright, often twinkles, especially when low towards the horizon. This is due to shifting air currents breaking its light into separate colours. To Māori, Sirius is Takarua, the winter star. To Egyptians, it is Sophus, and its dawn rising heralded the annual floods down the Nile Valley. Below Sirius, Orion is now lying on his side, low in the west. A line of three bright stars forms his bow. To Māori, these three stars form part of the bird snare, Timano Rori. A fainter line of stars and above and to the left of the belt form his sword. To some southern hemisphere sky watchers, the belt and sword form an asterism called the pot or the saucepan. Opposite the setting Orion, Scorpius and Sagittarius can be seen rising in the east after sunset. By late evening they are both well above the horizon and are host to a number of beautiful and interesting objects. In the south, Crux, the southern cross and the pointers are now high overhead in our evening sky. Near to Beta Crucis is a cluster of stars called the Jewel Box. Visible as a hazy star, this cluster makes for a pretty sight in binoculars. More detail will be seen when viewed through a telescope. Between Crux and Sirius running along the Milky Way are the constellations of Carina, the Keel and Vela the Sails. This region is home to a large number of bright stars, clusters and nebulae and some can be easily viewed with the unaided eye and many more can be found using binoculars or a telescope. 
Eta-Carina Nebula is the brightest of these and covers a larger area of the sky than the Orion Nebula. This nebula, surprisingly, does not look as impressive as the Orion Nebula. This is due to it sitting in the Milky Way. Binoculars reveal a region embedded with star clusters and glowing clouds of gas intertwined with dark lanes. Eta-Carina itself appears as a bright orange-coloured star. In 1940, this star was visible only in telescopes of 8th magnitude, but has been brightening since 1998 and is now a magnitude 4.6 star, visible with the unaided eye. This time of year offers a great opportunity to observe the aurora australis or the southern lights. This is caused by the interaction of the solar wind with the Earth's magnetic field and atmosphere. Aurora can be visible from parts of southern New Zealand, Australia and South America. The amount of activity on the sun in the form of sunspots, coronal holes and solar flares will affect the visibility and intensity of any aurora activity. The sun has increased in activity so far this year and is predicted to peak during our spring of 2013, so hopefully this year we will see a number of bright auroras. A number of websites have real-time information and prediction of aurora and are well worth checking out to see if activity is occurring or forecasted. The planet Saturn will be visible throughout our evening sky. Appearing in the eastern twilight, this planet appears as a bright yellow star sitting in front of the head of Scorpius. Although it is the second largest planet with a diameter of 120,000 kilometres, the immense distance of 1 billion kilometres means that in a telescope, the planet will appear as a small yellow disk surrounded by the famous ring system. Jupiter is in the evening sky, setting not long after the Sun, and by month's end will be joined by two other planets. Venus will be visible later in the month in the west after sunset and will climb higher as the month progresses. Mercury will also join the gathering appearance of a bright orangey yellow star. A conjunction will occur with the planets low in the evening sky, sitting about an hour after the sun. Venus will be easy to find as closest to Jupiter on the 28th, just over a degree above Venus. Binoculars are likely to be needed to show Mercury at 3 degrees to their right. The message of spacecraft currently orbiting Mercury has confirmed early observations that water ice exists in some craters around the planet's north pole. These craters, like those on the moon, are deep enough that sunlight never falls onto the crater floor, and this has allowed water deposits to survive. How the water was deposited there in the first place is open to debate. Another interesting result is that there is strong evidence that Mercury has a molten core, and this might be what drives its magnetic field. On May the 10th, around midday, observers in northern Australia will be treated to an annular eclipse. For observers either side of this line, a partial eclipse will be seen. Here in Wellington, less than 1% of the sun will be covered, and for North Cape, 13%. Comet 2012 S1 ISON has continued to brighten as it moves towards the sun at around 17th magnitude. A Hubble Space Telescope recently imaged the comet and captured a very active nucleus. Predictions have the comet brightening to visibility in binoculars during August, and becoming visible to the unaided eye in October. As comets generally take no notice of our predictions, we will have to wait and see how bright it actually gets. Many thanks for listening to our Jobcast, and we hope you have clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. We've had a postcard from Katie Calvert of Hurstminster in East Sussex, and she went to the Kennedy Space Centre and sent us a postcard with a picture of a shuttle that's pre-launch on it. So that's pretty cool. And she also put some photos on Facebook showing an Apollo command module. So one of the bits of the Apollo spaceship that actually splashed down with the astronauts in it and a control room as well. You can say to me about going to the Kennedy Space Center if you want to. I know you want to tell the listeners that you've both been to the Kennedy Space Center. I haven't been there. Yeah, we've been there. It's pretty yeah. cool. It's kind of all right. You wouldn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Katie, for that postcard. And also on email... Thanks to everyone for sending in Ask an Astronomer questions. On the forum, J.R. Edge and Ellen Jenny commented on Tim's answers in Ask an Astronomer. J.R. Edge asks, was the question about falling through the centre of the Earth inspired by Total Recall? It's a good question. He's talking about the remake of the Total Recall movie. And I am one of the small number of people who have seen that. <laughs> I don't think it did very well. In the original, they had a colony on Mars. But in the remake, they seem to have a colony in Australia, um, and there's two colonies, one in Europe and one in Australia, and they travel between these two colonies by going in a vehicle that basically goes through the Earth wow. in a long tube. I wish we could go to Parkes Observatory in Australia that way. That would be a, a lot quicker. The The annoying thing I thought when I watched this movie was when they take this journey, so people commute from Australia to Europe in the tube, 
they give the speed they mention the speed and the time it takes and because I'm a nerd I was calculating it during the movie and they give the wrong value in the movie <laughs> well, and it was hard to concentrate after that <laughs> maybe they power it through the center of the earth they don't just let it fall they just yeah maybe they do they seem to ignore the fact that the center of the earth might be a little bit hot as well yeah well J.R. Edge did say that in the film they have zero gravity at the centre of the Earth, and was that correct? And yeah, yeah you, that's you, right. You would have no gravity because all the Earth would be pulling you in all directions. So, yeah. so that's that's solid. And apparently, when they get to the centre of the Earth, they, they 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 have a zero gravity fight scene. That's what he said. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds, that sounds was like a that was that was obviously when I was distraught about this calculation, not paying attention. <laughs> okay. So, Alan Jenny asks, "How is it that interference?" can enter into the Lovell telescope from the ground? Well, the answer is that it comes in from the side. So if you're on the ground and you can see in the dish, that means that interference has a way in. So it comes in at an angle. So you couldn't shield it because you then can. you'd miss out bits of the dish as well. Yeah, exactly. You can't completely shield it. Over on Facebook, Matthew Wilday says he's thinking of starting an open university course in astronomy and planetary science, which is awesome, and I can only assume that that is directly due to the dog cast. <laughs> of course. Of course. And Sarah Cornell says, the theme music made my head explode, smiley face. And that confused me because I haven't got around to <laughs> listening to the April uh, Fool episode yet. It's but now I will. all backwards and shame on you for not listening to pra- all I'm the past episodes sorry. since you left. It, it, it just what hurts you didn't too listen much. To it? it hurts too much. Well, this theme music certainly hurt a few people's <laughs> ears, I think, because Adam played it all backwards. But I just like that Sarah said, the theme music made my head explode, followed by a smiley face. <laughs> happy exploding head thank you for that and over on twitter um, there was another comment about the interesting backward intro to April's jogcast um, happy hero was wondering if time is going backwards now um, yes it is look you two are in the studio exactly. clearly regressed in more ways than one <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for all the jogcast recommendations on twitter and finally on twitter um, we noticed that Stuart astronomy blog or the jodfather as we know him Stuart Lowe, went to the Carter Observatory and he tweeted about it. And he said he took them a special gift, uh, but you'll have to wait and see or hear uh, what that is. So does Stuart have like a Jodfather ring that all the little Jodcasters <laughs> have to kiss? And I don't know. Possibly. Maybe he should get one. Maybe he should. I'm pretty excited about this uh, present that he's given to Carter Observatory, actually. In the next On The Month show, I think we're all going to appreciate that. Except Jen, who won't be listening. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get in touch you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net on the forum at forum.jodcast.net on twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast on facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast on youtube at youtube.com slash jodcast on flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast and of course you can always send us posts the address is on our website so that brings us to the end of the show, and all that's left to say is thank you very much to Rubina Kotak for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Claire Brotherton, and Mark Perver, and the producer was Libby Jones. So until next time, jot on. Mm-hmm.